This is Storybeat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Storybeat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. StoryBeat episodes are available at storybeat.net and on all major podcast apps and platforms. If you like this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating or review. And please, won't you subscribe to StoryBeat wherever you listen to podcasts? My guest today, Steve Bramson, is the Emmy award-winning composer of hundreds of primetime television episodes and numerous feature films. He scored 10 consecutive seasons of the long-running CBS series JAG. At the time, it was one of a handful of series that utilized a large live orchestra for each of its weekly scores. He received two Emmy nominations for his work. He also worked with George Lucas on one of the final episodes of the popular series, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Other TV shows Steve has worked on include The Nine and Journeyman. Steve has also composed the music for many highly acclaimed feature films, including In Enemy Hands, Don McKay, Decoding Annie Parker, and most recently, Last Call, based on the life of poet Dylan Thomas. He's also done orchestrations for now classic movies, such as Apollo 13 with James Horner, James and the Giant Peach with Randy Newman, and Starship Troopers with Basil Polidorus. Steve's versatility was on full display when he scored the popular amusement park ride From the Earth to the Moon, written for Disneyland Paris. He earned a master's degree from the prestigious conservatory, the Eastman School of Music, and while in school, he was noticed by distinguished film composer Lawrence Rosenthal. Upon graduation, Rosenthal invited Steve to join him in Los Angeles, where he orchestrated many of Rosenthal's scores. Steve also composed the musical Shimmy with Storybeat guest, lyricist Pamela Phillips Oland and choreographer Donald McHale. And he was also one of the first composer fellows in the Sundance Institute's Composers Lab. At the end of today's episode, Steve has gifted us with two pieces of his music. The first, Lithe and Well, will be followed by It's You. So be sure to stick around to hear Steve's work. And for all those reasons and many more, it's a great joy for me to have my guest on Storybeat today, the incredibly talented composer, Steve Bramson. Steve, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Good to be here. It's great to have you here. So let's go all the way back to your roots. Where did your love of music and composing first begin? When you were a boy or later? Probably in utero. Because, in utero? Well, probably because my parents were both professional musicians. I'm, oh, is that right? I'm, I'm joking, but... Uh, you know, I grew up in a, a musical household, so uh, music was part of our life everywhere. My mother was a soprano, an operatic soprano, who uh, performed quite often in, in and around New York City. So she was always singing and she was teaching at home. My father, he was a, uh, a Juilliard trained clarinetist, though he pursued a career as an educator and later a businessman. He, he ran a music school in the community and a music store. Again, music was just around the house all the time. My sister was a couple years older than me was already playing harp and then piano so it was it was just around all the time you were immersed in it everywhere you went i was immersed in it 
I'll, however, I did not, uh, my parents wanted me like my sister to start piano very young, probably five or six, but I did not take to it well. I did it and after a couple of years I quit. And as we may discover later, it, I took a sort of a circuitous route to becoming a professional music, but a musician, but that was the first instance of my wavering. Well, would you then say that your parents were, in fact, your earliest uh, inspirations and influences, or were there others that you were listening to who were really influencing you ultimately in, in the positive way? Well, you know, my first, the, the thing that really kind of uh, made me dive into music is something I felt really seriously about was jazz. And so in that sense, probably the big band music my father played around the house because that was his, when he was a young man in his 20s, that was where he kind of uh, lived in the musical genre. And so um, in that sense, I suppose my father was an inspiration. I didn't really, and the music he listened to, I didn't really uh, take to uh, the sound of opera and vocal music, even though I was around it all the time. Mm -hmm. It took me many years to kind of find my way back to that. Well, who were, who were the big influences for you from the jazz world? Who did you listen to? Well, I mean, in terms of my education, the, there was uh, one man in particular which had a huge impact on me, a man named Mitch Farber. My father, as I said, had a, a community music school. And around the time I was 12 or 13, he hired this young man who was in his 20s, who had moved to New York to try to be successful. And he became my piano teacher and introduced me to playing, you know, playing piano, playing not just jazz, jazz, classical piano, writing, arranging. Uh, he had me do uh, takedowns and um, introduced me to some of the standard tunes that jazz musicians learned in the repertoire. Well, for, um, so for the uh, unwashed, including me, actually, I've never heard of, and you call it a takedown? What is that? Takedown. A takedown, when you transcribe oh, down. So it. in other words, um, a, let's just say a solo by Miles Davis and, and uh, you would transcribe it. You'd listen to it and, and take it down. You could do it as, uh, you know, just a single line. And sometimes you take down arrangements. You try to actually listen to all the parts of, of the band or the orchestra and dissect it and write it down. It's a great way to learn and to and get your ears working. But um, through working with Mitch, um, you know, he threw a lot of music to me. He got in the habit of, um, assigning me pieces to listen to every week. Like what? What was, he, what was he having well, you listen to? I mean, I remember he wanted me to go through all the Beethoven piano sonatas, for example, and uh, Hindemith, Moffat der Mahler, which is you know, a very famous symphony by, by Hindemith. And uh, he would tell me, you're going to put these things on, and even if you don't like them, you're going to keep listening to them for the whole week and with the score following along. And sure enough, virtually every time, by the time the week was over, if I didn't already, I'd love to the piece. Hmm. And so that was an exercise that he had me do. And he also, you know, um, I can't recall specific examples, but, um, you know, there were jazz tunes, jazz performances, records that he would say, go home and listen, listen to this. Another uh, memory of an early influence, there was another teacher at my father's school, another jazz uh, pianist, who for my birthday gave me the album of um, Central Park North, which is an album by a great uh, jazz band, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, big band. Anybody mm. who knows anything about jazz and uh, knows that this band was a huge influence and game changer in writing and arranging for the big band back in the 60s. And uh, I really took to that. And it, it was just sort of a, um, a mixture of uh, things coming from various places. I also had a very important teacher 
in high school, uh, when I was eight, you remember earlier I said I rebelled against piano lessons. Yes. When I was eight, I decided I wanted to play trumpet. And my father had <laughs> taken me to a high school concert, a uh, neighboring high school concert, and I heard this piece performed by their trumpet players, and it got me all excited. So I did that for several years. And then around, uh, I was when I was a freshman in high school, I lost interest in trumpet. And I had started to study with Mitch, so my interest in jazz and getting back into piano kind of overtook the trumpet, and I quit trumpet. I wanted to play in a newly formed jazz band at the high school, but the teacher wouldn't let me because I wasn't playing in uh, uh, any of the band, in a band or any other ensemble. So he said, if you will play percussion, you can, because you can play piano, you can read, you know, mallet instrument notation, vibraphone, right. xylophone, it's a similar you know, layout of the keyboard. If you do that, then you can play piano in the jazz band. And that's what I did. But that, he was also- That got you back to the piano. Yeah, yeah, and to play in the, in the jazz band, which is what I wanted to do. How, how old were you when you learned to read music? How young was I? Yes. I imagine probably even when I first started, you know, when I was five or six or seven, whenever it was that I started my very first piano lesson. Well, that's, real, that's really young. I mean, that's yeah. very young. I suppose probably that's a really good thing. In all fairness, it's probably seven, five maybe is a little. Well, but even I, still, that's, that's yeah. really, I mean, you're, re, you're starting to read music about yeah. the same time you're learning to read. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, again, I can't, I, I don't know what it's like for others, but I think growing up in the kind of family that I did, it was sort of an obvious thing to do. And, um, but, uh, but, you know, I think that just looking back, you know, these, these things I mentioned were very big influences on me. And, uh, and around the same time that I switched to piano in, in high school and played in the band, I, I formed my own quartet. I mean, I formed it with others. Um, we had a jazz quartet where we would play and write music of our own and, and go out and get gigs at the local pub or the you know, parties and stuff. So, um, so you were playing from early on in front of people as well. It wasn't, this, it wasn't a foreign thing for you to play before others. Yes, I mean, in terms of the, the, the quartet and playing in the ensemble, yes, but I never did any solo recital, like piano, piano recitals. I mean, I had, I had to do them for my, you know, uh, you know the school, the, the, my father's uh, music school, the teachers right. every year would have their recital. And I choked. I remember playing something and I completely choked, froze, I stopped. I don't even know if I, if I finished the piece or walked away, but I was so terrified. Huh. So... I never, um, you know, I went on after that, of course, through college and uh, playing in bands and I had my own quartet and played in pubs and jazz clubs and stuff. But uh, that never really bothered me so much. But the solo, like it was just me. I just couldn't deal with it. Huh, interesting. Uh, yeah. All right. So, so eventually you go off to Eastman, which is a very famous conservatory for yeah. music. Um, and, and what was it that you learned there? How did you grow in that way in, in a conservatory? Well, if you don't mind my backing up for a second, sure, I, please do. I, because I alluded to this earlier, when I went to college, I didn't, I didn't know if I wanted to become a musician. I had other interests and I went to the University of New Hampshire. And I, I think in my junior, uh, sophomore year, I declared a music major. And about a year or so, year and a half later, I, I just didn't feel it was working for me. So I, I quit and switched to another interest of mine. I ended up getting a degree in economics, but I continued to play in the band and write and stuff like that. But uh, what happened was um, I, the summer after I graduated, 
I decided finally to go to the summer programs that Eastman offered that my teacher had been urging me to go to for many years. I just never, I never did. And when I went there, it completely blew my mind and opened, uh, you know, uh, me up to a world that I never really knew before. The level. How so? How did it blow your mind? Well, the level of musicianship, and this is nothing against University of New Hampshire. I mean, they, they also had an excellent music department, but they tended to be more directed towards music education, a lot of teachers. For sure. And, and it didn't attract the kind of pool of talent that a school like Eastman would. Well, uh, of course. And so when I went, the level of musicianship, the, 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 uh, the uh, just, you know, passion uh, of performing, the, the level of, of the mastery of the work that was being done, the way the, the music itself that was being written, I just found really exciting. I didn't hear any of this when I was at UNH, not, not in the department. I heard it on recordings, but not from my peers. And um, it was just really thrilling. Uh, I remember walking in, they have this beautiful, uh, must be about a hundred years old now, theater in Rochester, New York, the Eastman Theater. And I think that was the first place I went when I arrived that summer and I walked in as gorgeous theater and on the stage, this sort of jazz orchestra was rehearsing or playing. And I just, you know, it just knocked me out. I just was so exciting. The, the energy and the, uh, the, the style of music too, you know, my ears were just more drawn to uh, jazz and uh, more rich kind of uh, uh, chromatic harmonies than, than what I kind of imagined and had been around in a lot of the classical music that I had been exposed to by that point which of course is limiting, but, um, and I just said, I, this is what I want to do. So going to Eastman actually turned you toward making this a real profession. Yeah. And just to back up one more, uh, a bit, what, what really triggered it was, uh, when I was graduating from UNH, uh, with my degree in economics, I had written an arrangement for the jazz band. And I was planning, or I was imagining, well, what am I going to do with an economics degree? When am I going to get an MBA? I guess, you know. So I was thinking about that. In the spring concert of my graduating year, they programmed an arrangement that I had written. And there was a guest artist, a guy named Buddy DeFranco, very famous, important jazz clarinetist, who was the guest artist. When the, when the concert was over, he found me and asked me if he could buy this arrangement, that he could use it for himself. Wow. And that's what really... That's the thing that really turned the switch for me because I was not imagining how I could make a life in music. First of all, not, not only how, but could I, was I good enough? You know, sure. I had all those doubts. The fact that somebody like that took an interest in my music, that's what gave me the courage to go to Eastman that summer because I hadn't gone. I'd had other opportunities, but I'd been kind of insecure about my you know, ability and not really sure. So I went. So it was the combination of those two things that really turned me towards was it one of those uh, epiphanies where you went, wait a minute, I can actually get money for this? Well, it wasn't just about the money, I'll be <laughs> honest with you. Uh, because, I mean, he, I think he paid me $50, which back then, I guess, was you know, still a nice, nice bit. But uh, it was really more, it was sort of an acknowledgement that I have, I have something going on that, could, that, that maybe could take me someplace. Sure, of course. And so I went to Eastman. And then uh, what, I, what happened there, I went that summer, and when I was there, I discovered that they had a master's program. It was called Jazz Studies and Contemporary Media, and it was designed, unlike a lot of the other programs, to uh, you know, graduate students that would go on to fill positions in orchestras and 
teachers and so teaching to to graduate people who would work as professionals in production, whether it's records, performance, arranging, composing, Broadway. We had to analyze Broadway tunes and shows and we did all kinds of stuff, but they had a master's program. And I said, well, this is what I need to do. If I wanna become a professional musician, I need to go. So I found out what I needed to do to, to get accepted. And because they didn't have a music degree, I had to fill in a lot of gaps. So I took off a few years and studied privately and kind of caught up on stuff and I could create a portfolio and I, I submitted it and I got accepted and I went, that, that's how that happened. All right. So let's go flash forward just a tiny bit and to say, uh, as I mentioned in your bio, that um, you get noticed by Lawrence Rosenthal, who's a notoriously uh, great composer. For the audience who doesn't know, uh, tell us a few things that he is known for what movies or TV shows did he work on? The ones that come foremost to my mind are uh, *The Miracle Worker*, probably maybe his most famous. Right. Uh, *Requiem for a Heavyweight*, *Beckett*, uh, *Return of a Man Called Horse*. Uh, there are many others, uh, but he was a very. Uh, he also he got an Oscar nomination for his uh, as musical director for uh, *Man of*. I think it was *Man of La Mancha*, the movie. Right. Um, and I think he had one other nomination. It might've been for Beckett. I'm not sure, but, um, so he, he notices that you've got some kind of skill or ability. Well, what happened was uh, like all, all colleges, they have alumni come back and he came back and, uh, I knew who he was and I followed him everywhere and went to all of his talks and stuff. And, uh, we got some one-on-one time. So he got to see my music, but but what happened was, um, during my graduate year, um, I applied for a grant from the school. They offered these grant, it was a pool of money they would offer to students that were, uh, to do summer study. And I proposed, I, I said, gee, I'd love to go out to California and work with Larry if he'd have me. So I, I wrote up this proposal. It was after I'd worked with him, obviously, there. And he agreed. And so I got, I think, $400. But yes, I asked him, basically, is what happened. I said, can I, I'd like to come study with you and watch you work, Kent, would you have me? And he said, yes. And so after I graduated, I went out. That's really cool when that happens. It doesn't, obviously doesn't happen for everybody. No. So he, he saw something in you, clearly, uh, yes. that, that made a difference for him and that he was willing to have you work for him. Yeah. Um, all right, so now you go out there. What were the big important lessons as both a composer and arranger and so on? Because you did mostly orchestrating and arranging for for him correct yeah that's all i did that's all i did with him for five or six years all right so i've had other orchestrators and arrangers on the program but i think it's always instructive for those that are hearing about this for the first time explain to the listeners what an orchestrator and arranger does what is the reason why you're there because we're talking about film and television scoring i'll talk Mm -hmm. about orchestration in that context absolutely Um, even when a composer is is and most composers are skilled enough knowledgeable enough to do their own orchestration it's usually a a matter of time because production schedules are are tight having an orchestrator allows a composer to use shorthand in a way that makes that makes his job he can get through composing more quickly Mm -hmm. so they will write a sketch essentially that depending on the composer and how they work will have uh uh very little uh detailed information to an almost complete score, but just in a reduced form. Uh, 
but the job, so the job of the orchestrator, depending on the score and who you're working with, can can also lie on different points on a scale. Uh, when a, when a composer hands this, the music to be orchestrated, the orchestrator, it could be as thin and bare bones as here's my melody, and I want it to start here and then the here, and these are the points that need to hit, and I need it to be loud here and quiet here, and it needs to be active here. Go home and fill it out. Could be as bare bones as that. Fill fill it out, meaning add instrumentation to it. Yes. In other words, we've got we've got a, a sixty piece orchestra. We've got double woodwinds. We've got you know four horns, two trumpets. You know whatever the you give you the instrumentation. You go home, take this information, and you make my music sound great. I've given you instructions. You have material. You go home and you do it, and you write it out on the score page. And then and, when you're and done, all you have to start at that juncture in the bare bones way is just a melody, basically. You well, I'm going from one extreme to the other. On one extreme, you may have a melody sketched across a bar and, and maybe filled in exactly where it's supposed to be uh, with maybe some chord symbols notated uh, to indicate the harmonies, maybe a few suggestions of a counterline, notations of I want this big, I want this small, I want it active, uh, here I want to shift to this key. Like that, it could be that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. On the other end, the you can be given a sketch where there's really no decisions that the orchestrator really has to make at all. And there what he's doing is he's taking generally a condensed uh, score. You can almost imagine like say a piano part or a very detailed piano part and then realize it for the orchestra. But every note is there. There are no, there's really very little you need to add other than it's almost a music preparation function where you're transferring to the score page, you're almost copying. But as you're doing it, you're also making sure that everything lines up correctly, that there aren't errors that you see. And, and also when you meet with a composer, um, you will have conversations. What are you wanting to do here? What about this? You know, I see you've written this line here in the bassoon, but what if I were to add the violas to that? What do you think about that? You'd have these kind of conversations. So there is some input in it, but it's uh, the composer has much more control over the ultimate sound than the first version I gave you. Well, the, uh, my imagination tells me that the orchestrator or arranger is 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 taking the composer's vision and bringing it to life. It's yeah. not the arranger's vision; it's the or it's the composer's yeah, vision. That's the, that's the job, and that's that's why even with the very bare bones version I gave you, there like I've been in situations where I've recorded on a tape my meetings with the composer. Uh, to talk about all this, what his vision is exactly. Like, even if it's not on the page he's giving me, he, I will ask him, what is it you're going for here? And I'll have it to refer to later when I'm working. You know, I want it to sound mystical. Uh, I'd like to hear uh, upper woodwinds through this section, but you know, so I'm being given instructions verbally instead of notationally. Mm -hmm. on the page. But it just allows composers that are working under extreme pressure, time pressure, to work more click, uh, quickly. But it also is a, it's a function of how the composer likes to work. Larry was a guy, he studied with Nadia Boulanger, which is one of the most uh, important uh, educators of composers, uh, uh, would go to France to study with her. With Brilliant Boulanger, composer. yeah. Nadia, Nadia Boulanger. And, and so he was a, and a fabulous pianist. He was a graduate of Eastman, obviously. He was an alumni there. So there was, he, he was able to do all of this work himself. And so his sketches were incredibly detailed. There was very little for me to add other than 
as I say, when we go through it, I might say what, I make a suggestion. What if we did this, what if we did that? And some of you would approve, some of you would did not. And then I would go home and just make sure everything was correct on the page so that the copyist could then extract the parts for the musicians. Interesting. All right. Yeah. All right. So then how long was it that you were working as his orchestrator before you started to compose on your, you know, as your own uh, composer? Um, there was kind of an overlap because uh, while I was, you know, after I moved here to California, um, even while I was working with him and in between projects, I would try to meet people. I would, I would ring up other uh, contacts I might've gotten or uh, visit people I'd met and I'd go to sessions and introduce myself to people. And, and at that time, there also was a pretty, um, a, a strong uh, system in the studios of music um, supervisors. So there was a music supervisor that was the head of the music department in various studios, including not just, you know, the, the big, you know, 20th Century Fox and Paramount, but also production companies like Lorimar was one, I don't think they exist anymore, or Viacom, that produced their own television and they would have a head of music. Mm -hmm. And they were very accessible and they were very open. You, if you call them up, they'd take your call and you'd introduce yourself and they'd, they'd invite you in for, to meet and maybe leave a cassette off to listen to. There's, I don't think this kind of thing happens much anymore as far as I know. Um, so I did that kind of thing. And people got my name here and there. And, and, it, and I have to say, and I'll tell you a, a quick funny story, but the mere fact that I could say that I work with Larry was a huge deal, as you can imagine. It opened you, doors for you, I'll bet. It opened doors, but it, 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 it just gave me a immediate credibility. When I was in New York, uh, I, went, I moved to New York City after I graduated, before I came out to California. And I was living in New York when Larry finally called to say, come on out and work with me that first summer that, that I was going to. But I was looking for work in New York. And I remember New York is more of a, you know, at the time was more about advertising and jingles and stuff like that. Film scoring. But right. I found a list of production houses and I, I decided to send a letter to everybody saying, introducing myself. I just graduated from Eastman. I just came back from, it was after I worked with Larry. I had come back from LA before I moved permanently. And I said, I just come back working with Larry Rosenthal. I'm going to be sending you a cassette of my music. Within a week, I got a phone call from a guy said, I, I need, a, I need somebody to help me out of this mess. I mean, on this score, this movie that I've been hired to do, can you come and write this music for me? He didn't even want to hear any music. The mere fact <laughs> that he saw that he worked with Larry, he knew who Larry was, said, that's good enough for me. That's the kind of thing that happens sometimes. Well, that's that's a door opener for sure because you're Definitely. you're uh, guilty by association or you're approved by association. You know that's that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it's really helpful, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm I'm eternally grateful. All right, so let's talk about m movie and TV music, which is to say, music in general. And correct me if I'm wrong is about emotion. It's about passion. It's about feelings. It's not about intellectuality or, or academic thinking. It's about emotion. So what, where do you draw your, your inspiration? Where do you look for emotion in the, in the images that you see when you're working on a TV show or a movie? Yeah, I would say I'm a very visual person. And I think that uh, a lot of times what I'm reacting to is what I'm seeing. Of course, sometimes what's being said too, which is, you know, I mean, if I, you know, the, the, the nature of the dialogue and the scene, you know, the combination of the visuals and the spoken word that combine give the impression of the emotion, mm -hmm. you know, all, of, all of that. I definitely pick up on that. 
I've often read of guys um, writing music to scripts, you know, without picture. Interesting. And I've never, well, I shouldn't say I've never done that, but I've rarely done that. And I, uh, I, there's an argument to be made to defend that way of working. And I understand that, but knowing myself, um, that's not as natural an environment for me to create than to, to when I'm working on a film project, at least, and then to see it. Well, if somebody were successful at doing that, the audience would never know. That's true. You know, at the end of the day, all we all work for anybody that's in the entertainment industry that presents product to an audience. The audience doesn't care what you went through to do it. They just that's care right. about the end result. That's right. That's so, right. So how you get there, that's what I'm fascinated by is how you, a successful professional, how you yeah. get there because well, that they may, may inspire others. I, I respond to what I'm seeing and hearing when I watch the footage mm -hmm. of the film. You know? it, so you're not, you, do you read scripts before you start work or do you just wait for picture? When I'm, when I'm given the opportunity to read a script, I do. Yeah, I'm not mm -hmm. always given an opportunity. A lot of times I'm brought in after it's shot and there's no point in reading a script really. Sure, of course. Well, yeah. there, there's no substitute for having the picture, that's yeah. for sure. But I mean, like the last, um, I, the, I, the last two projects I did were with the same director and in both cases I read the script first. And that's because he, he hired me before he started shooting. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, for the first film, I actually went, you know, he wanted me to come to the set thinking that it would inspire me. I don't know if it inspired me, but I certainly found it fascinating and interesting uh -huh. because I'd never really, you know, saw, you know, particularly working in television, you know, it's such a fast turnaround, you know, by the time I'm spotting one show, they're, they're, they're editing the next one coming down the pipe. So I, well, I never got to you, you as a composer are generally speaking after the fact. You don't, you're not pre-production. You're usually in post in some way. Yes, but as I mentioned there, I, I have read of and I know of composers who, who've asked, been asked by their directors to start writing music before they shoot. And they'll play it back on the set while they're shooting or they'll use it during editing, you know, even before the composer's really seen anything. Uh, well, isn't, really... isn't that ideal, Steve? You know, we hear about temp tracks or somebody mm -hmm. puts existing yeah. music that has nothing to do with the movie into, and then the, the, the edit gets stuck in that temp track and the composer gets stuck with that rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, you know, because of how I started, particularly you had asked me about, you know, w when did I start doing my own composing? Mm -hmm. My introduction to a career as a composer was in television. And, uh, and not in movies. And, um, you know, I just, a lot of time, you know, in, 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 until later, in particular, you know, even with JAG, but before JAG, I was brought in on series that had already been on the air. So there already was sort of an idea of what the score was supposed to sound like. Right. It had already, you know, established a, uh, an idea and a theme and all that. So I was more of the guy who, had to come in and, and do what was asked of me, not to come in and bring my ideas to them. I mean, yes, I need to craft a good score, one that fit the picture, but I wasn't shaping the sound of this, these projects. Well, that's the, that's the equivalent to me because most of my writing has been in TV and I'm on a series someone else has created or it already exists. So you're writing in their world. You're not creating something whole cloth, brand new that nobody's ever seen before or heard before. You're using their underpinnings as what you're working on. Yes. Same, same thing. That's it's, what you're talking yeah, about. It is the same thing. 
And so, uh, you know, so, th so this, this idea of kind of creating the world yourself from the beginning, I have had some, you know, later I, I worked on a couple of series where I was able to do that more. And also with these movies. Where you created the title theme and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, they didn't actually, by the time, <laughs> These shows, you know, they've disbanded with the title. They just have these like bumpers that would start the show. Like, right. So there wasn't anything, there was no theme. Well, the, be the best one of those was Lost, which was just kind of like a, an ethereal, ooh, and that was the end yeah. of it. Yeah. The <laughs> Nine, which I did in Journeyman, both worked that way. Well, the Journeyman, I think they found something, I forgot what it was, but I had nothing to do with it. It was very short. Um, but but the score, the sound of the score was my creation. You know, we're working with the producer. So. Interesting. All right. Well, so obviously one of the big parts of your career was working on JAG for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, you don't have a military background, correct? No. No. So where did that come from? Did you just listen to a lot of military style music? Is that how you worked it? Well, or I mean, if how you that, listen, how that happened? If you listen to the, the, the underscore... Yes, there are certain episodes that lean more heavily on the, the militaristic, you know, the march and the, and the solo trumpet and the snare drum. There, there's definitely that. But a lot of it is just drama, you know, and it could be almost any story, really. Right. But in terms of that specifically, um, you know, uh, I guess I would, I would say part of it is, uh, you know, listening to what Bruce Brown, who wrote, wrote the theme and the pilot, uh, established for the show. I knew I could hear what that was. I also did, I did listen to my share of marches when I was young. My father was, uh, led a military band when he was in the service. So mm. I heard stuff. I knew about those, but there was, you know, there wasn't that much of that kind of stuff in JAG. Um, and, uh, and I guess also just, you know, the kind of training I had, I was trained to kind of be a man who could wear many hats. You know, I learned and listened to all kinds of different stuff. So it wasn't, um, that wasn't one of the bigger challenges for me. So what were the bigger challenges? I think just um, being in, able to step into, as we said earlier, something that was already created and to do it uh, successfully, you know, to-, to Hop, Hopping to, on a moving train? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I had, look, the fact that, you know, Bruce recommended me, uh, you know, was a, a huge uh, boost of confidence too. I felt pretty secure. Sure. You know, if, he, if he said, hire Steve, uh, you know, that I could do this. Um, but, um, and I, I think the other big challenge, and you may know this too, Steve, from your work in television, is, is one, I think one of the biggest challenges was keeping up the pace of that kind of work. Well, that's, that was going to be my next question. So let's just explore it. What did you do? How did you handle the relentless pace of it coming at you over and over again for weeks on end. How do you handle that? I just, I just did it. I just stayed and I put in long, long hours uh, and uh, didn't sleep as much as I wanted to. Um, and you just kind of press on, you know, I, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I think there was a kind of a thrill, you know, uh, there's this sort of that uh, energy of just, a rush of having to, you know, meet these, the pressures being put on you and race to get it through uh, that drove me. Um, well, I, you were working I, on a top rated TV show. And yeah. so a lot of people are paying attention. Yes. And as you mentioned earlier too, uh, I had an orchestra to work with every week, 30 to 35 musicians that in itself was extremely exciting for me. I mean, the high point 
of all of the work was being on the scoring stage and hearing my music. The, the, you know, the work at home could be tedious at times. In fact, it often was tedious. But being able to keep up with that pace and also as the years went on, keeping the, the inkwell full, you know, and then after a while, you're writing the same stories, the same characters. Oh, I know. Keep it new and fresh. That was challenging. And so did you have any tricks for doing that? Was it just keeping at it? Keeping at it. Keeping at it. Keeping at it. I mean, the one thing that I did was I tried to think of each episode as its own little mini movie in a sense. So I would introduce new themes in almost every episode with the exception of, you know, the, the, the hero of the show had a theme and the show itself had a theme. And later a couple of secondary characters had themes. But in terms of the, you know, the mood and the tone and even sometimes instrumentation, I would try to every episode as its own thing, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that kept, uh, that presented a new challenge for me every week by doing that. And, and how often would you hit sort of little bits of brick walls or did you never hit them? Oh, I would hit them. I mean, uh, I think it became harder as it, uh, years into it, you know, four or five, six years into the series, because I did it for almost 10 years. Well, you it, don't want to repeat yourself. And that's what they're asking you to do is to repeat yeah. yourself only in a new way, right? Yeah, exactly. And that became hard. And I, but even, even within episodes, there would be a cue here or there where I would like just draw a blank. And, you know, like probably anybody else, what I do is I move to something else. And you know, I move to a different section of the movie of, of the show to, you know, tackle that and then come back. You're taking that, that uh, central processing unit in your head and trying to give it a break and go somewhere else so that you get some inspiration, yeah? Right. Or, or leave the studio and go for a walk, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and, um, yeah. Did you conduct most of your, your scores? I conducted all of them. All of them? Al- al- almost all. There's one or two I maybe didn't, but, uh, yeah, almost all. And, and that's a big rush, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is, you know, again, hearing your music performed by these incredible musicians, uh, stuff that's lived in your head, because the other thing, you know, now we all work differently, but then I was at a piano with a pencil and paper. There was no, there were no virtual mock-ups. There were no synth mock-ups or anything. Oh, this was before synthesizers. Before synthesizers as a composing tool. As they, a tool. You would see them on the stage, you know, you know the musicians would have them to play. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I, yeah. I didn't mean that they didn't exist. I meant that you yes. didn't compose on them. You yes. composed That's on a work. you composed yeah. on a good old fashioned keyboard yes. uh, uh, keyboard on a piano with a pencil and paper. And I'd leave these scores out, and the elves would come pick them up. And the next day, the parts would be on on the stand. Wow! How yeah. how often would you get in there and somebody screwed up the those parts? Not uh, often. Not they're, often. They're great. They're you know it's incredible when you think about. The production involved. I mean, you know, we're you know uh, seasons of twenty-two episodes. Uh, you don't go twenty-two weeks back to back, but you may go five weeks back to back, and then have a week off or something like that. But even that, going at that rate, you know, doing twenty minutes, maybe twenty-five minutes of music every week for thirty to thirty-five players. Uh, the score is usually written in about five days. Uh, you know, hand it off. Uh, you know, I would I would finish writing at mid night maybe and I'd leave my packet out and then they'd pick it up at three or four in the morning and then they'd go home and I would do this every night and then uh the day of the session I'd show up and there it was that's <laughs> that's got to feel a little bit like a miracle yeah it is a miracle 
and and what adds to the miracle is the also the fact that the musicians they don't rehearse this stuff they don't they, see it they time. sight read it they sight read it <laughs> and <laughs> i mean you know you read it once you read it twice and you're done you record it and you move on you know and you don't have the luxury i mean if you're if you're doing a a huge you know multi tens of million dollar feature film with, with this you know padding of money everywhere then yeah you can nitpick and take your time but you had to get this done in three hours or five hours or whatever the session was so what was the t for the for people who don't know including me what is it like to stand in the middle of all of that sound coming at you it's thrilling it's well it's thrilling but also because of <laughs> the kind of person i am i'm also very nervous you know is this gonna work what did i do <laughs> you know but uh you know almost always i was okay you know but uh, it was thrilling you know absolutely and and can you uh share any story that was like um you it just didn't work and how did you solve that was there anything that was a disaster and how did you solve it no disasters but uh unlike today where people uh, work on workstations and submit their work for for critique before it's finalized and you can get notes from your director and your producer and make mm -hmm. the changes before you're done because we didn't do that then i'd have to do it there so uh often i would have a cue uh, we'd do it and the producer would say you know that thing you did over the shot isn't working for me can you what can you do to fix that i mean that would happen frequently because it, on the spot on the spot because well we didn't have any of it there was no other way to do it then and so you know you'd have to think about it and uh i mean I'm, uh, i'll just you know make up something it could be uh you know assigning the part to a different instrument like maybe you she said it's not heroic enough all right so give it to the brass i mean something simple and cheap like that but it could also be uh you know a, a quick rewrite of a few bars you know uh but, you know, take a figure that had written that was wrong and, and either maybe borrow it from somewhere else and plug it in there. A lot of times instructions to fix things are like, you'd, you'd say, okay, Oboe, I'd like you to take what you have in bar three and now put it in bar seven, but take it down a step. You know, stuff like that. You just kind of throw it together. And the musicians would just do it, wouldn't they? Yeah. Well, they all have pencils and they write it in and yeah, they do that. But I mean, they don't really rehearse it or practice it. They don't go away and practice it. They just do it. No, they just do it. I think that's probably one of the most amazing things about what you wind up doing is that you give it, hand it over to a whole bunch of different people who come together as a group with literally zero or just a tiny bit of practice. Yeah. I, I, I think that's pretty amazing. All right. Yeah. So when you, let's talk about this process of, of actually writing cues. You, you would receive footage. Uh, in some way, I assume, did you get it by video or you didn't get it then, from the computer though? Then it you? was videotape. It was video cassette. Okay. So now time. somebody shows you, here's the scene or scenes or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you have X amount of time that you need to put music into because right. it's going to have a finite length of time to it. Yeah. What generally was your first step? Were you sitting back and trying to feel your way through it? How, what was your generally your first step? Do you want me to speak specifically about JAG or just in general? Oh, you can use JAG as an example, but in or in general, whichever is uh, clearer. But uh, if, well, if JAG helps, use JAG for sure. In the case of JAG, because the theme, I already had a theme. Uh, I think one thing, you know, first of all, um, in all in, of all these kinds of uh, 
scoring projects, there's something called a spotting session, which I assume has come up before in your talks probably. But explain it again. So the What's spotting the... session is a, is, a set, is a meeting where the composer meets with the director and our producer, along with often a music editor and uh, other, maybe the editor, picture editor, and you discuss where exactly music will go. Because of course, you know, it's not, you know, music starts in the first frame and continues without stop to the last frame. It comes out, it goes in, it goes out, it goes in you know, throughout the whole project. So you spot the film for where the music will be. Because it doesn't necessarily want to be everywhere. No, it should probably never be everywhere. I mean, maybe in some cases, but. Sometimes silence is uh, as cool a sound as Absolutely. music. In fact, a lot of what happens, a lot of what determines where the cue begins is preceded by a discussion about the silence. Let's wait for the end of this line. There's a nice pause after he, he says this, or when the camera finishes its pushing, or as it's pushing in, give it a breath, that kind of conversation, those sort of things will happen a lot. Uh, but the spotting session is a session where you determine and discuss not only where the music will go, where, where it comes in and where it goes out, but also what is it doing? What is it, what is it you want the music to do here? I think this needs to support uh, the internal dialogue of this character. You know, we're not, he, he's not speaking about it, but we know this is what he's feeling inside, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, or it may be more overt. We want the music to support what we're seeing. Um, you know, she's running down the street, uh, trying to catch him before he leaves. And I need to feel that energy, whatever it is, but you have these discussions. And the music editor is like a, um, a, a note taker, an assistant, one, one part of the job. And they will compile a list of all these cues, the decisions of where the cues will go with the notes. Director says he'd like to feature flute here. Uh, director says, please be careful not to let the cue go too long. You know, whatever the notes were that we talked about. Right. All be written out. And so I get this list at home. So now I'm looking at the video. And the first thing I do is I'll watch the whole thing. And I'll look at my notes and I'll see, okay, so this is, that's the scene where, okay, I got that. Then I'll go on. Okay, nothing here. Okay, here's the next cue. And I go through the whole thing and I kind of take a mental inventory of what it is I need to do for this show. And I've, I've already started to kind of put things in sort of their spaces. Okay, this is, I need, you know, I, I know I have this instrumentation so I can hear this, this cue is going to be heavily strings and quiet. Uh, but here I need to use more brass. Oh, here's another one I'm going to have more, you know, so these are related. So I kind of start to put it together that way. And those instruments to you represent certain feelings and emotions? Well, it's more like I'm gathering my tools. It's like, okay, I, I'm, I know I'm going to do this kind of music. So I know I'm going to want to have this group of musicians. At the least, these are the kind of instruments I'm going to want for this mood that I want to create. It's, it's a starting place. So one of the fascinating things to me about movie and TV music is that it, we are in a business in which um, we deal only in sight and sound. We only can see and hear things. We can't smell. We don't taste. We don't touch. We see and hear. It's on a screen and so on. And the music sort of fills in these emotional gaps that may not necessarily be obvious to an audience and helps the audience understand. Uh, I find that very fascinating about music and the the best example i can give is if anybody's ever watched film a whole film with yeah. no score to it yes it's an entirely different experience than when you have oh, yes. the music 
I'm always fascinated by the power of music. Obviously, I'm, you know, I have a slanted view, a biased view of it, but, uh, but it's really true. You know, there are so many instances, if you really pay attention sometime, next time you're watching something, if you pay attention to how the music enters, okay, you're in a scene where there's, it's quiet, there may be dialogue and sound effect, but there's no music. But if you pay attention to what happens when the music enters the next time, it's really interesting what happens to, to us, I think, when that happens. Even if a single note, even if a, if a, if a, if a cello just plays a single B mm-hmm. quietly and kind of sneaks in, it completely changes the experience. Wow. With just that little bit of musical information, there's no melody, there's no harmony, just the sound alone immediately can imparts this thing that wasn't there before. It changes the energy of everything. Yeah. It's really uh, amazing. And it is, uh, I think, extraordinary that there are, oh, there are uh, a, a number of movies and TV shows, and all you have to do is play the first three or four notes of that theme, and you know exactly what show it is. It dredges up all the memories that you had of watching it, it makes you maybe want to watch it again or, or maybe never want to watch it again. Depends yeah. upon your feeling about that, yeah. that piece. And that's all music. It has nothing to do yeah. with picture. It, yeah. your, your brain fills in all the rest. Yeah, I know. It's really fascinating. It, it is uh, fascinating. Um, so, all right. So do you have a favorite movie you've worked on or a TV show? Was it Jag or is there something that just well, steps out as the thing for you? Perhaps because it's the most recent one, but the last movie that I did, uh, I'm very proud of, and uh, I think it's it's among my favorite. If I I don't know if I have a favorite, but it's certainly among my favorites. What's that? This movie uh, in the introduction you referred to it, Dominion. It actually has a new name. It's called Last Call now. Last uh, Call. Last Call. But it is about uh, the life and work of Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet, and uh, that was a project that I really enjoyed working on because uh, yeah yeah. Um, it was, you know, certainly challenging, but uh, it's a wonderful movie and really, really beautifully acted and shot and written. Uh, and uh, it's had lots of opportunities for me to try some different things. Uh, on the face of it, it may not sound that different. It's a, a score for strings uh, and a, you know, piano and harp. It's a small group, but I don't know. It's just something about the 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 visuals and the story it's shot you know it's primarily shot in black and white um most of the story takes place in new york in the 1950s but there are flashbacks to uh whales right and those those are in color so the the, the, the back and forth is really interesting and uh you know i was thinking about what we were just saying a minute ago about you know where do you find the you know, how do you find the, the approach you want to take for a visual, you know, of all the infinite number of choices and, uh, and where it comes from? I mean, I, I'm sort of, as you can tell, I'm sort of thinking out loud. I don't have an easy answer to this, but the way the movie starts is there's like this up tilt of the camera uh, of a young boy running through the snowy woods in Wales. And there's an over, there's a, a spoken, almost whispering dialogue of Dylan Thomas speaking. Hmm. reading and you know choosing what it is that I did to play over that which is 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 fairly simple but in the way we were just discussing I feel 
really evocative in its simplicity. There's something that it's adding. Um, all, and of all the, all the choices that one could make, um, you know, why that? Um, and I don't know why, but it's what I felt. It's what <laughs> well, I felt. as a great poet, sometimes we don't know why they're writing what they're writing, but yeah. we get something from it nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, sort of the same thing. All right. I'm just curious in your experiences, is there anything that you have learned over time that you always now do that in the beginning, maybe you didn't do so much of that you now repeat that is helpful to you? I, I, I can't think of anything specific, to be honest with you, Steve. Is, is there anything um, than the reverse of that? Is there anything that you've learned over time that you did and did, and then you realized I'm never going to do this again? I don't want well, to have this happen to me again. This may not be the, the answer you're looking for or expect, but I, what, it, what it calls to mind for me, and I'm speaking personally and I'm being very honest, is to trust myself. To trust yourself. To I trust think that's myself. exceptionally uh, a good answer. I mean, because you're saying that in the beginning of your career, you didn't trust yourself. Well, there's a kind of a, it, there's a, kind of a continual questioning you know, like a, a reevaluation constantly. Is that going to work? Is it going to, you know, is that maybe there's, and so what happens is the search becomes endless because you're constantly questioning, was this good enough? Or is it right? Is this as right as it could be? You know, and so you're, so you're, because you're, you're uh, constantly questioning it, you're never able to settle on it and then move with it. One of the things that I also often remember is something with uh, all jazz musicians, I've been taught this and have, have heard this, is that there are no wrong notes. Okay, so if you're improvising and you, you hit a clam, let's call it, you, you, it isn't a wrong note, you turn it into the right note by what you do with it, right? So using that kind of analogy in coming up with an idea, yes, you have to do the homework of finding your theme and you know, doing that, but, but in terms of the trust, once you get to a certain point, enough with the questioning and now work with it, make it work. And usually it does. You just use your craft and your skill and you find and you move forward. I think you have just succinctly described what artists do and what they're about. Okay. I, I would say that that is what all artists experience is that if you knew what the answer was before you started, it would be not very worthwhile to do. Um, it would, you know, the, the part of part of being an artist is the struggle to find. And that's what you're talking about. Yes, but the the antimatter, the anti force against that is the doubt is a questioning that that doesn't allow you to move forward to let it be. Well, now you're talking about how many great artists have there been in the history of the world? that have a degree of neurosis. That's, <laughs> that's what you're talking about, is that you, we, all people that create question what they're doing, and you're, you're no different than anyone else. But what you've learned is to trust yourself. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's something you probably gained on, only over a long time of doing it. And For me, it has taken a long time. And I still, and I still deal with it now, not mm -hmm. as much. You know, we are who we are. And, uh, but yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, it, it is a long learned lesson, but uh, one that I've, I've come to know it's really, really important. Do you, does you feel more satisfying to you when you've come to that feeling of yeah. acceptance of who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm going to guess many people who are listening to this will understand exactly what you're talking about. The, 
Well, you know, I have a young son. Well, I mean, he's a teenager now, but you know, uh, when he's struggling with work, particularly creative work, whether it's writing or something like that, um, I tell him what I try to tell myself is um, just put it down, put the idea down and just write and go. And then when you're done, then you go back and you edit it. You yep, know? absolutely. Because if you critique yourself at the beginning, you'll never write it down and you'll never start. And, and the point is to start and, and the trust comes in and knowing that in the end it will work out. The other part of this that we haven't talked about is craft. One of the important, one of the ways that we're able to uh, trust ourselves is to accept that we have a certain amount of craft, that we have the ability to do it, to work it out, to take it's, a lemon and turn it into lemonade. It's taking your skill set and becoming a professional about it by working it. And you can't get that craft without doing it and doing it and doing it. Exactly. I mean, I've been teaching now for close to 10 years uh, to, to writers. And uh, one of the things we talk about constantly in there is you just have to kind of just do. You can't go down to the corner store and there is no um, composer store down on the corner where you can go buy this week's TV score. You have to actually do the work. Right. And that a lot of that is craft. It's an art and a craft. So you have to have the artistic viewpoint, the skill set, but you also have to have the ability to understand all of the mechanics of it, all of the discipline of it, all that, that's all craft. That's right. I agree. And I think that that's, there's a, a, a great deal of value in understanding that without that, you probably aren't going to have much of a career. I don't see how, you know, I mean, People come to this from all different angles. You know, there's people who like me who kind of come later. And, and, you know, I, for me, I have a master's degree from a conservatory. Others who went direct from high school right into a fine music school and they knew from day one what they wanted to do and studied. And there's other people who never went to music school and formally trained, but they all, they all can have successful careers. And I think it's due to the one thing you mentioned at the beginning is that Music and, and scoring, because we're talking about scoring, is about communicating emotion. And as <laughs> long as you can feel and understand emotions, um, you're probably going to find a way to get it out and express it, whether or not you have a formal music degree or you've just taught yourself to play guitar. If you can communicate the emotion, some director is going to hear that, and that's going to be enough. Well, and, and the beauty part about music is there's, there's virtually no limit. Uh, yeah. You know, you can have... Steve Bramson, you can have John Williams, you can have Carter Burwell, and the three are going to be very different. And yet you're going to get a result of some kind that's going to drive an emotion. And again, you know, because I think that, uh, and I think this is even more applicable today in the modern world, uh, a little goes a long way. And if you understand the power of music, even if, and uh, you know, you, you, you feel that you don't possess the skill and depth of craft and skill that other composers can. If you have that understanding of the power of music, a little will, can be extremely successful in a film. So you don't need it to be schmaltzy. No. Schmaltzy you, is not in uh, uh, style anymore. Not in vogue at the moment, for no. sure. Sentiment out the window. A little simpler and just more direct is probably better. I like it better when it's stripped down. I also, listen, I also love lush scores too. And that's what you had with Jag, which was very lush. Well, you know, when I 
when I fell in love with film music, I mean, you know, Elmer Bernstein, uh, Lawrence Rosenthal, Leonard Rosenman, and even going back further, Miklos Rosa. Uh, these were a lot of, well, not all, but the earlier ones were all emigres from, uh, you know, Europe, and many of them were steeped in this romantic tradition, Korngold, Eric Korngold, one of the great film composers of all time. I mean, he rivaled any concert composer uh, and created, in a certain sense, a style of romantic film scoring along with a lot of the others at that time. But now, people don't, they don't write like that, nor do they want that. No, that's correct. Well, we've been talking for close to an hour, and um, we're going to kind of wind this thing down a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, you have clearly worked and worked with and met many people in the industry, and you've had lots of experiences. Do you have a story that you can share with us that's either oddball or strange or quirky or weird or just plain funny? Well, when you ask me this question, you know, I... The first thing that comes to my mind, and I've told this story many times, and the more I tell it, I, I realize it's not as uncommon as I thought it was. But it's just an embarrassing, one of these things that happened to me. I was working with Larry. Um, I was living in an LA, and he was living in, in the Oakland area. Uh, I happened to have family up there, cousins and aunts and uncles. And so when I worked with him, I would go up and I would, I would live up there uh, and work with him. We were doing a TV movie, I think, that was scoring in LA. And uh, I had with, I was going down in advance that day to hand off music to the copyist for the session that was gonna be the next morning, or might've even been later that day, I don't remember. So I've got all his sketches and all the scores with me. And I get on the plane out of Oakland and I'm in the airport and I'm looking out the window and just, I mean, the airplane looking out the window and thinking about it. And suddenly I realize, where's the music? <laughs> and I totally panicked. I looked on the overhead, I looked down below and I, I didn't have it. And I ran, a, <laughs> I flagged down the stewardess and I said, you, I've got to get a message. Somehow. They, she went to the pilot and they tried to call back because I said, I think I left it at the airport or something. And she came back and said, I'm sorry, we're out of range from the tower now or something like this. Um, there was a phone on the, you know, they, they had phones in the back of the, of the seats. And I took one and I called Larry's house. I felt terrible and I prayed that he didn't answer and his wife would answer because I could tell her. <laughs> she did. I told her what happened. She was extremely sweet about it. She said, don't worry, uh, you know, look into it. And so the rest of the flight, I told her what I thought happened. You know, I, said, I think I left it at the, uh, you know, the bell cap, the bellman, you know, really the sky cap. So I land there, just, you know, just, pan you know, just completely panicked. And I called her. She found it. The sky cap had found it. I'd left it on the sky cap. He put it aside. He didn't throw it away. And when, when Larry came later to get his flight, he picked it up. <laughs> and so later that night, my part of my job was to pick Larry up at the airport. Oh. And I had to drive up to the curb and he when i pulled up he's standing there with this look like you lucky son of a bitch and he was standing there with the with the music because there was no other copy he i had i had his sketches and the scores oh my so, goodness anyway. but i've heard that there's others who've had these kinds of stories so i'm not the only one 
Oh, there are lots of stories, of course, about uh, being on location and the footage coming back and being crushed or ruined and they have to go reshoot the whole thing. So, yes, those things do happen. That's not uh, that unusual. But that (laughs) for you and then then for you to then go pick him up. (laughs) Yes. Yes. By then I knew Diana had told me that that they'd found it. So I knew everything was going to be okay. but I didn't know how he would react, whether he would just say you're fired or. What I don't know what he would do. Was he, he was he amused? He was amused, but also very. He scolded me. He says, "You're one lucky son of a bitch, and don't you ever let that happen again." You know. And you, that never happened again. I'm of sure. Of course not. Of course. <laughs> Be- because every time was a little bit of a freak out. Well, you know, you better do it. Though, if you can imagine, Steve, I had the originals and the sketches. There would be no way to reconstruct that for a recording session the next day. That would have been ruinous. <laughs> So anyway, and, and expensive. Jeez. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Last question for today. Um, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip that you can lend to those that may be just trying to get into the industry now or in the business, or maybe they're in a little bit and trying to get to the next level? Well, I think for someone who wants to get into it, uh, I would think of two things. Uh, one, um, in terms of yourself, uh, work on your uh, work on your musical voice. Work towards finding your musical voice. What is your musical Define. voice? Explain. It's you, who you are. What is your musical expression? What is your sound? What is it, your expression? What makes you unique from the others that are, you know, out there? Um, develop that. Develop the sense of yourself as an artist, as in, you know, whatever that is for you, whether mm-hmm. it's... Uh, guitar-based music, whether it's, uh, you know, um, new age, you know, I, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever your voice is, uh, work, you know, work on that, develop that, and expose yourself to as much as you can, learn and soak up as much as you can. But um, I guess what I'm alluding to is that when I started out, I don't know where it came from, but I had the understanding to be successful, you had to wear many hats, you had to be able to you, you know, write adventure music. You had to sound like John Williams. You had to sound like uh, this guy. You had to be able to do anything because you never knew who was going to call and what they'd want. What I'm saying is rather than go that way, focus more on your own personal voice. And that way, I think uh, the way a product is being created today and the interest in, in all kinds of new uh, individualized, you know, projects and uh, the different streaming services that are much more open to variety and different interests that there's an opportunity for a new ear sound your personal sound to attract the ear of someone looking for something uh, I, I, that that's my my advice I, and, and I, the second part of that and then I'll, I'll do that sure. is that is is in any way possible make a connection try to make connections with filmmakers whether uh, that means uh, if you're going to university and they have a film department find those people get to know them, get to see if you can help them with their projects. Uh, so many times those relationships have developed, particularly in college and university, uh, go on to blossom later. You, you align yourself with other creatives who have a path that's sort of uh, you know, parallel to your own. Get in on those things early if you can. That is, those are two very excellent pieces of advice. They hold true, I think, for again, artists in general, not just um, musicians, composers, whatever, 
that you need to find who you are to express that you're not trying to just copy others. You eventually must become who you are as an artist and then to seek out others who will hopefully take the same lifelong journey with you and, and that way introduce you to many other people as well. I think those are two extremely sound pieces of advice. Steve Bramson, this has been a fascinating and very fun uh, hour plus uh, of uh, learning about how one operates in Hollywood in particular in a uh, composing career. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on the show today. It was great fun, Steve. Good to see you. Good to talk to you and good to hear you doing such a wonderful project. Oh, well, thank you very much. And as promised, Steve has gifted us with a real treat. Please enjoy now two pieces of Steve's work. This is Live and Well and followed by It's You.
And so we've come to the end of today's story beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Story Beat episodes to you. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.